Go ahead and turn to Matthew chapter 4. Matthew chapter 4. We are currently working our way through a series that will define the vision of Van City Church for the coming year and really I think for years and years to come because our hope is to build and rebuild our church around this idea of apprenticing Jesus of Nazareth. So anyone who accepts this open invitation of Jesus to come and become a disciple, or you could translate that word, an apprentice, assumes three all-encompassing lifelong goals. The first is to be with Jesus. The second is to become like Jesus. And finally, to do what he did. Now, we've been working through the last couple Sundays that list one at a time, those goals respectively, and in detail this evening, we've arrived at goal number three, to do what Jesus did. So, with that said, let's get to the text. Matthew chapter 4, beginning in verse 18. As Jesus was walking beside the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon, called Peter, and his brother Andrew. They were casting a net into the lake, for they were fishermen. Come follow me, Jesus said, and I will send you out to fish for people. At once they left their nets and followed him. Now, that phrase, I will send you out to fish for people, could also be translated, I'm sure you've heard it said, I will make you fishers of men. And that isn't Jesus with this bad dad joke or some kind of lame pun, you know. Fishers of men was actually a common first century idiom that meant great teacher, believe it or not. Someone who captured the mind and the imagination of their students. So Jesus is effectively saying, Follow me because I am a great teacher and I will make you into great teachers as well. Look down at verse 21. Going on from there, he saw two other brothers, James, son of Zebedee, and his brother John. They were in a boat with their father Zebedee preparing their nets. Jesus called them and immediately they left the boat and their father and followed him. Jesus went throughout Galilee teaching in the synagogues, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom and healing every disease and sickness among the people. News about him spread all over Syria, and people brought to him all who were ill with various diseases, those suffering severe pain, the demon-possessed, those having seizures, and the paralyzed, and he healed them. Large crowds from Galilee, the Decapolis, Jerusalem, Judea, and the region across the Jordan followed him. Then it goes on to chapter 5. Now when Jesus saw the crowds, he went up on a mountainside and sat down. His disciples came to him, and he began to teach them. Then in the story, what follows is what we often call the Sermon on the Mount. It's a collection of Jesus' kingdom of God manifesto teachings for how one lives as his apprentice. Now, turn over to Matthew chapter 8. Matthew chapter 8, let's read beginning in verse 18. When Jesus saw the crowd around him, he gave orders to cross to the other side of the lake. Then a teacher of the law came to him and said, Teacher, I will follow you wherever you go. Jesus replied, foxes have dens and birds have nests, but the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. Jesus always with the cryptic, weird stuff. Uh, Another disciple said to him, Lord, first let me go and bury my father. But Jesus told him, follow me and let the dead bury their own dead. So we see from the text that there are some who encounter Jesus and they're eager to follow him. They're like right up to him. I'll follow you wherever you go right now. Others are are a tad reticent or or they make excuses. Uh, I have other things to do first, but then I swear I'm going to follow you. Turn over to Matthew chapter 9. Let's read beginning in verse 9. As Jesus went on from there, he saw a man named Matthew sitting at the tax collector's booth. Follow me, he told him. And Matthew got up and followed him. 
Now, I'm sure many of you guys are familiar with uh, the context here. In first century Israel, a tax collector was a heinous sort of human being. Uh, traitors to their own people. Tax collectors were in league with the Roman Empire who occupied and oppressed Israel. So think of a tax collector as sort of the historical equivalent of a Jewish informant for Nazi Germany. And Jesus sees something in this guy and invites him to become an apprentice. It goes on in verse 10. While Jesus was having dinner at Matthew's house, so now he's at the guy's house hanging out, many tax collectors and sinners came and ate with him and his disciples. And when the Pharisees or the religious teachers saw this, they asked his disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? On hearing this, Jesus said, it's not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. But go and learn what this means. And Jesus quotes Hosea 6, I desire mercy, not sacrifice. For I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners. So Jesus understands that many of his own followers are something like sick people or diseased people that are in need of urgent medical attention. Jesus himself acts as the doctor in this metaphor, and his way of life is the treatment. Look down at verse 35. Jesus went through all the towns and villages, teaching in their synagogues, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom, and healing every disease and sickness. When he saw the crowds, he had compassion on them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. So we get the, the, the image here that people are everywhere. So many, in fact, that these overwhelming crowds defy the accommodation uh, and capability of a single person, even though this person happens to be Jesus. Verse 37 says, Then he said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, meaning there are tons of people, but the workers are few. What we need, Jesus is saying, are more workers, workers that are qualified and capable capable of doing what Jesus himself does. So he says to his disciples, verse 38, ask the Lord of the harvest, therefore, to send out workers into his harvest field. Now watch where Jesus turns to remedy this predicament. Chapter 10. Jesus called his 12 disciples to him and gave them authority to drive out impure spirits and to heal every disease and sickness. These are the names of the 12 apostles. First, Simon, who he called Peter, his brother Andrew, James, son of Zebedee, his brother John, Philip, Bartholomew, Thomas and Matthew, the tax collector, James, son of Alphaeus, Thaddeus, Simon the Zealot, and Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. Spoiler alert. These 12... Jesus sent out with the following instructions. Do not go among the Gentiles or any, enter any town of the Samaritans, not yet anyway. Go rather to the lost sheep of Israel. As you go, proclaim this message. The kingdom of heaven has come near. So the exact same message Jesus himself proclaimed. Heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse those who have leprosy, drive out demons. So do exactly what Jesus was doing. Then he says, freely you have received, freely give. So Jesus says to his apprentices, I have given you guys so much, now it's time for you to give. One more time, turn to Matthew chapter 28. Matthew chapter 28. Let's read one more thing, beginning in verse 16 of Matthew chapter 28. Then the eleven disciples went to Galilee to the mountain where Jesus had told them to go. When they saw him, this is, by the way, Jesus is, again, spoiler alert, he died and now he's back. It's a crazy thing. You've got to read the whole story. So the, the 11, they go to Galilee, the mountain where Jesus had told them to go. He's back from the dead. When they saw him back from the dead, they worshiped him. 
but some doubted, you know. Then Jesus came to them and said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go, make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. Surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. And then he leaves physically as the story goes on. Now, as you're reading story to story to story to story in the Gospels this way, you begin to sense sort of a pattern. In the story, Jesus arrives on the scene, first century Israel, as a rabbi or a teacher, assuming the role of a teacher himself. But as you read the story, it becomes more than evident that Jesus is more than just a teacher. He is also the long-awaited king of Israel, the anointed one or the Messiah, uh, albeit in an unanticipated sort of package. And he's come to usher in this thing that he called the kingdom of God. Then Jesus begins to appoint for himself disciples or apprentices to join him in kingdom living. It's like, hey you, what's your name? Peter. Great. This is your brother. Great. Let's go. You guys come and follow me. Now these apprentices of Jesus live with Jesus. They follow him around everywhere. More than that, they live like Jesus. They assume his very life methodology, so to speak. They adopt his lifestyle. They become like him. And as they practice Jesus' way of life, they begin to change. If you know the story, sometimes it's a bit clumsy, awkwardly at times, or with resistance, but they learn and they change. Now next comes the truly fascinating moment in the story. Jesus turns to his apprentices and says, now you're up. It's your turn. Imagine that. So, okay, Peter, you see that sick woman over there? Go heal her. Andrew, you see this guy over here that's oppressed by evil spirits? Take care of it. Or James, I need you to make your way to Bethsaida with the kingdom announcement that Jesus is the king. Go preach the gospel there. Or Matthew, I have a job for you as well. And shockingly, this flawed young group of apprentices actually goes out. And then eventually they come back and they debrief with their master. But there's another shock as the story continues. Jesus has taken on all these unlikely young apprentices. He's trained them in his way. They stumble along the way, sometimes horribly and, and sometimes quite charmingly, but empowered and authorized them to do what he did. And then comes a moment in which Jesus says, I'm done here. You're ready? Go make disciples. I'll be with you even though I won't be here physically. This is actually the pattern of apprenticeship. In fact, social theorists argue for four stages in the process of apprenticeship. Stage one is, I, the master, do, you, the apprentice, watch. Stage two is, I do, and you help. Stage three is, you do, and I'll help you. And finally, you do, and I, the master, watch. And it's the same paradigm that we see carried out in the four Gospels. Jesus does, and the disciples watch. Jesus does, and the disciples help. The disciples do, and Jesus helps. And finally, the disciples do, and Jesus watches. This is the very idea I want us to sort of wrap our heads around this evening. The end goal of our apprenticeship to Jesus is to do what he did. My friend uh, Kyle, who's a part of Van City, he works down the street as a tattoo artist at Hopeless Inc. Every day he works alongside um, this young lady who's an apprentice there. And the goal is for this young lady is that when her apprenticeship concludes, she will become a tattoo artist herself, in theory. Uh, we have several people in our church who have worked or are working in the medical profession and the end goal of their years of education and their training and their hard work is to become registered nurses and nursing assistants and doctors or whatever themselves. So can you imagine this young lady down the street 
at the tattoo shop, completing her apprenticeship, shaking hands with Kyle and saying, uh, thanks for the trivia and the insider lingo. I'm going home now. And then she goes home and never lifts a tattoo gun for the rest of her life. Or our friend Katie, who's a, a, our deacon here, she endures all this hard work and this training to become this certified nursing assistant for what? So that she can better understand, you know, the, the plot threads of Grey's Anatomy or something like that. She goes home, she's like, I'm going to understand this way better now. Thanks for all that hard work. Money well spent. You obviously see where I'm going with this. If you, if you claim to follow Jesus, then your goal is to grow and mature into the kind of person who can carry on the work of Jesus in the world. What work exactly? Well, put very simply, the work is to usher in the kingdom of God, which one might parse out into at least 10 different categories. There's preaching the gospel, what we would call evangelism, telling people about Jesus, basically. There's teaching the way. There's uh, theology, doctrine, studying the scriptures. There's healing the sick, casting out demons, eating and drinking with people far from God, doing justice, peacemaking, praying, prophesying, and standing up against religious and political corruption. If you follow Jesus, then your goal is to do all of that. All of those things. Not on day one, of course, but you are working to grow in maturity and experience so that you might become the sort of person that can preach the gospel and heal the sick and teach the way and on down the list. And I want to say something right now. Please listen to me. I know that I've begun to lose some of you. Uh, maybe, maybe more than a few of you, because some of you are thinking, sure, that's great, that list looks fantastic on paper, Jesus did all those things, yeah, that much is true, but I'm not Jesus, that much is clear. Uh, neither was Peter, nor Andrew, nor James, nor John, and they did all of that, all of it. And so did the early church, and all the writings from the first few centuries of the church, we read about all of that being done by ordinary men and women who follow Jesus. So do a tremendous amount of Jesus' disciples today. They do all of that still. In fact, um, there's this fascinating passage in Acts as the church is just beginning to grow without Jesus there in the flesh, and it says this, When they saw the courage of Peter and John and realized that they were unschooled, ordinary men, they were astonished, <laughs> and they took note that these men had been with Jesus, the first goal of your apprenticeship to Jesus, be with Jesus. And now we've begun to tap into something um, that I think requires our attention as a church because the more we stir this vision to become like Jesus, the more, the more we invite a certain point, which is that Jesus was God. It's a bit of an elephant in the room. I get it. Yeah, I know. Jesus was God, sure. As long as I've followed Jesus and as often as I've seen Jesus, the teacher, celebrated as sort of our template for life, I've heard that reminder. Yeah, but Jesus was God. It sort of echoes out over our presumably unattainable idealism in life. And we talk about the way that Jesus maintained a constant state of awareness of the Holy Spirit, that he lived in constant connectedness to the Holy Spirit. Some of you think, yeah, but he was God. When we talk about being transformed from the ground up that we might be as Jesus was, the kind of people who are free from worry and anxiety and lust and greed, some of you think, well, sure, but he was God. And especially when we begin to talk about continuing the work of Jesus, healing the sick and prophecy, some of you are refraining in your mind, Jesus was God and I'm not Jesus. And that mindset often becomes this seemingly impenetrable barrier on your road to become like Jesus. 
So bear with me through a quick detour as we do our best to address this very complex issue in a matter of minutes. It should be a four-hour lecture. You'll be fine with two minutes. Um, so li listen to me on this. Ancient Orthodox Christianity has always affirmed that when God was born as a baby, Jesus of Nazareth, that God became a human being. What I mean is that the humanity of Jesus is not a facade, it's not a disguise, he isn't sort of faking it somehow. Um, Jesus is not God in an avatar, uh, he's not God in a human body, he's not puppeteering this thing. He was Jesus, the man. Now, there is a mystery here, absolutely, how the divinity of God can coexist with the humanity of Jesus, which the church has always affirmed to be the case as well. But we recognize that he was indeed a human being. Um, my friend and Professor Gary Brashears says this of God's incarnation as the human Jesus. Jesus puts down the God card. Meaning, if there is an all-access path to the universe, Jesus voluntarily relinquishes that card. Or in the language of the scriptures, he empties himself and becomes nothing. Um, Jesus is not omnipresent or everywhere at all times. He's spatially located, one place at one time. Jesus is not omniscient or all-knowing. He asks questions. The text says that he grows in wisdom, meaning that at one point he has less wisdom and then he gets more of it. Um, Jesus is not omnipotent or all-powerful. He gets tired, he gets sick, he gets hungry and thirsty, injured, and near the end of the story, he even dies. Um, so understand me on this. All of the activity of Jesus was carried out by an authentically human person who was empowered by the Holy Spirit. And he did this as an example to the apprentices whom he taught. Everything? Yes. Everything. You're, you're thinking like uh, the, the miracles that were, yes, absolutely the miracles. So what about uh, raising people from the dead? Yes, absolutely that as well. Jesus did these things not by benefit of being God per se, but by the power of the Holy Spirit. His disciples did the same exact things by the power of the Holy Spirit. You and I apprentice Jesus to do what Jesus did by the power of the Holy Spirit. My friend, uh, Dr. Brashears, he says, Jesus laid down the God card and he picks up the spirit-filled human card. Now, as much as I'd like to you know, uh, believe that I've completely alleviated that misunderstanding by what could have been a four-hour lecture and, and with a tiny little tangent, it actually sort of further complicates the question we're posing tonight, which is, how do we become like Jesus uh, today? Growing the kingdom in a hostile, thoroughly post-Christian Western world often feels like uh, trying to garden in frozen, corrosive soil. In fact, I would argue that the mission of God has become more difficult than a few decades prior, not less. There was a time, believe it or not, when the church's effort to make slight adjustments in the name of cultural relevance went a surprisingly long way. But that no longer impresses anyone. No one, cares, no one cares about like a rock band and that you turn the lights down low. It's like, wow, these guys are onto something. Po Post-Christian culture is not only indifferent to the way of Jesus or unimpressed, it's actually hostile to the way of Jesus in that the way of Jesus requires the ultimate blasphemy against the modern status quo, which is self-denial. No one is into self-denial, and there is no way to dress it up or make it seem relevant. It's like, but check out how low the lights are. 
you know. This is where we found ourselves in a post-Christian Western society in the digital age, in a secular progressive world. We are trying to be a community of followers of Jesus seeking to rediscover the teachings of Jesus and the practices of the early church and apply them to the soil of a post-Christian world. And notice that word seeking, seeking to rediscover the teachings of Jesus. That's what we're after. We want Van City to become an epicenter for that pursuit. So how do we do that? Um, to end tonight, I'd love to outline five brief ideas that could hopefully move you from a sense of, of being overwhelmed by that list of all the stuff that Jesus did and maybe more to a sense of being empowered to do so. Are you guys still with me? You're awake? Oh, great. That was a lot of nods. I'm shocked. Wow. Wow. Uh, uh, the first thing is this. Remember the spiritual formation paradigm. We talked about this last Sunday. We'll come back to it next month because I believe this is vital to our purposes as disciples, to grow and mature into the kind of person capable of joining in Jesus' kingdom vision, along with everything required to do so, it takes many things. First, there's teaching, what we're doing right now, uh, learning, reading books, sermons. Uh, there's, there's practice, um, the spiritual disciplines, silence, solitude, prayer, fasting, prophecy, all those things. Um, there's community, not living in isolation, but together, held accountable, doing life, vulnerability, sharing resources with the family of God. All that with the empowering of the Holy Spirit. The Spirit must be the center of everything that we do, meaning it's by the Spirit that we actually learn from teaching. It's uh, by the Spirit that we practice. Um, it's by the Spirit that we live in community. And formation takes a long time, if you look at the bottom of the chart here. Um, and it happens through the hard knocks of life, which can actually act as a catalyst in our spiritual formation. And remember this, this won't happen all at once, and it, it won't happen passively. It requires effort and practice on your part. So embrace these things and give it time. The second thing I want to point out is to recognize your stage of discipleship and your season of life. Now remember those three goals that we keep mentioning, to be with Jesus, to become like Jesus, and to do what he did. This is not a three-step formula. It is a progression from one stage to the next. So you begin by learning what it means to be with Jesus. That means that you accept Jesus' invitation, you begin following him, you adopt his lifestyle um, by practicing the spiritual disciplines or the things that Jesus made habits and routines, silence, solitude, prayer, fasting, all those things. Um, you experience the love of God by the empowering of the Holy Spirit by sort of bending your routines and rhythms to be like Jesus, and then you find yourself becoming like Jesus. You find yourself gradually transformed from the inside out. Your character has been reshaped. The more that you do the stuff that Jesus did, the practices and the lifestyle of Jesus, the more old modes of thinking and behavior sort of begin to fall away. They, they don't make any sense anymore. And you find yourself taking on the inner disposition of Jesus, um, someone who's filled with love and joy and peace and so on. And then you grow and mature into the sort of person who's not only with and like Jesus, but who can actively carry on his radical kingdom work. And you can call that mission or ministry or whatever you like, but you carry on his work in the world. Now ask yourself, what stage are you in? 
Some of you, I know, have only just begun to follow Jesus. You're starting to practice the things of Jesus. You're learning to hear God's voice for the very first time, so to speak. Uh, Some of you have been at it for a while, and you're beginning to look and sound more like your rabbi all the time. Others of you have been doing it forever. You're ready to go. You're already out there doing it. We need to learn from you. Uh, And some of you, I know, have had a long, sort of complicated journey with Jesus. You don't know where the heck you're at anymore. Um, You remember being further along at one point maybe. uh, Now you suspect maybe that you've somehow turned around and went backward down the narrow road. You you don't know how to quantify what you're doing. So to you, I would say, start at the beginning. Be with Jesus and move along as the Spirit enables, empowered, affirmed, and held accountable by the community of God and the Holy Spirit. But don't try to unnecessarily jump ahead in the progression. Embrace your stage of discipleship. And alternately, do not stagnate and remain completely still. You are meant to complete your apprenticeship. There are seasons of life, absolutely. Uh, What the heck was Jesus up to for the first three decades of his life? Why don't we have more stories about that time? Surely something noteworthy (laughs) transpired in the childhood or the adolescence or the early adulthood of Jesus, at least something funny or weird, you know, Jesus as a teenager. And, and yet, he did not begin his kingdom work until about 30 or so years in. And a lot of you guys aren't even 30 years old, meaning nothing in your story would be in the book until a few years from now. That's fascinating to me because even then, Even then, the three or so years that Jesus did his kingdom work, there were seasons in which Jesus would go away for more than a month at a time or when he'd retreat from the crowds and the busyness of the people to be alone with just his disciples. So there are seasons of life and you have to recognize what season you are in currently. If you're a young mom, for example, with several small children, your season of life doesn't exactly accommodate a lifestyle of hitting the streaks to have a presence in an urban environment and preach the gospel and healing the sick every day. You're doing your best to try to maintain sanity. And that's the season of life that you're in. And that's okay. You should not feel guilty or rushed or feel as though you failed. There is a season that you're in. Um, Sometimes I think about that old question that we frequently posed in the 90s. What would Jesus do, you know? And uh, it's a tad misleading in the strict sense given that The fact that none of us are first century Jewish rabbis uh, strolling around the ancient Near East. Many of us, I know, aren't 30-year-old men. Um, And not to split hairs, but maybe a better way of positing the same convicting idea would be to ask, what would Jesus do if he were me? Meaning, if Jesus were a young mom or an urban professional or a nurse or a college student, what would Jesus do if he were me? One of the tough things about uh, leading a church is facing the reality that we're not all in the same place, you know? Some of you, uh, I happen to know for sure, desperately need to wake up and stop ignoring your responsibility as disciples of Jesus and get out there to do his work, stop treading water, and do something. Others of you, I also know for sure, need a word of caution. You need to slow down and care for your soul and think about where you are at the moment, to know your stage and your season and to make peace with it. 
There's this uh, cliche metaphor that I've often heard lobbed around that's sort of meant to describe the way in which we partner with God in kingdom work. Maybe you guys have heard it. In it, we're sort of like small children that want to work with our father, you know, out there in the garage, and um, we're trying to do complex automotive repair with dad. And according to the metaphor, we're not really helping. In fact, our dad doesn't need our help, and we're sort of just slowing things down. But dad enjoys our company so much that he lets us, you know, hand him the screwdriver and act like we're a part of the whole thing. Um, This morning, uh, Beck, my son, he's almost three, he asked me if he could help me unload the dishwasher, which he'd never done before. Uh, It took forever. There was water everywhere somehow. Um, We barely avoided breaking just about everything that was in the dishwasher. But honestly, I loved it. It was so much fun. I savored every moment. I celebrated and uh, delighted in both him and the help that he was giving me, you know. Um, And then that well-worn metaphor came to mind. But... To be honest with you guys, I've always hated that analogy. And forgive me if you love it or if you use it all the time, you know, to each his own. But with respect, uh, I sort of think of that uh, metaphor as incomplete at best and dangerous at worst because there may be a season of our discipleship in which that analogy is appropriate. Sure. But to carry the metaphor forward across the length of time, we get older and we grow up. And just as there will come a time in which I will not only hand over, I hope, certain chores and responsibilities to my son back entirely, I will also expect them to be accomplished with not just competence, but with excellence. So it is with our discipleship to Jesus. It's cute and sweet when, you know, a toddler bumbles their way through helping with the chores. But if Beck is a teenager spilling water everywhere and dropping the dishes and taking an hour to unload the dishwasher, something hasn't gone quite right, you know? It's okay now. It won't be later. There's work to be done, and there's spiritual formation to take place in every single season that you're in, whether you're the toddler or the teenager or the adult. And notice that even in the toddler version of the metaphor, the child is still by the father's side doing their best. So there is actively work to be done. So know your stage and your season and make peace with it, embrace it, and do well. Next, do not underestimate the power of practicing the way of Jesus together in community. I love this line from 1 Peter. Dear friends, I urge you as foreigners and exiles to abstain from sinful desires which wage war against your soul. Live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. Or this one from Matthew 5. You are the light of the world. Jesus talking to his disciples. A town built on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on a stand and it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. Earlier this week, I read this quote from Dallas Willard. You thought you were getting through one teaching without a Dallas Willard quote. Here it is. There is special evangelistic work to be done, of course, and there are special callings to it, but if those in the churches really are enjoying fullness of life, evangelism will be unstoppable and largely automatic. 
The local assembly, for its part, can then become an academy where people throng from the surrounding community to learn how to live. It will be a school of life for a disciple is but a pupil, a student, where all aspects of that life seen in the New Testament records are practiced and mastered under those who have themselves mastered them through practice. Only by taking this as our immediate goal can we intend to carry out the Great Commission. Now, I'm not saying just be a nice person, be like Jesus out there in the world, and eventually someone will just recognize that and say, oh my gosh, I think that there is a God and that he's revealed himself in Jesus and and I can do this to, to become his disciple. Now, obviously evangelism requires work on your part, primarily speaking the gospel out loud, but what I am saying is that if we actually do the practices of Jesus, it becomes a very hard thing to ignore. I have this friend. Um, he lives in Nashville. He's been a, a mentor of mine for years, deeply passionate about seeing the Spirit heal people of physical injury. He just really loves it. So whenever he's in, out and about, and I mean anywhere, going to gas or the grocery store or like, you know, his street ministry, whatever you want to call it, whenever he's out and about, he happens to see someone with a recognizable ailment, uh, like a, a cast or a limp or a cough, whatever. He's, he runs up to that person and he very politely and normally, as you can, asks if he can pray for this person. He says, oh, I've just seen crazy stuff happen when I pray for people. Could I pray for you? Sometimes they're like, get away from me, crazy man. Other times they're like, yeah, most of the time, actually. They're like, yeah, sure, yeah, why not? This is cute. And often these people get healed then and there of Crazy stuff that I've seen with my own eyes, insane, quantifiable stuff in the moment where broken bones line up or people stand up out of wheelchairs, bizarre, incredible things. And often they don't. They say, nope, still kind of hurts. And we say, man, that's great. Um, Thanks for letting me pray for you. I'll keep doing it. And then he'll start to talk to him. So sometimes there's amazing stories. Sometimes they're ordinary stories. But guess how often this guy talks to people about Jesus? Every single time he goes outside of his house. Um, Mark Sayers puts it this way. In any culture, but especially in one that yearns for holistic integration, the most compelling argument for the validity of Christian faith is a community that practices the way of Jesus. Imagine if your community... And our church became known all over the neighborhood and city as people marked by love, joy, and peace, concerned for other people, people who live simply rather than materialistically, people who care for one another at great personal expense to themselves. What would happen if people saw and recognized that? Don't underestimate the power of simply living in community and practicing the way of Jesus. Next, I would suggest this. Start with the basics and just eat with people that are far from God. In his book, uh, A Meal with Jesus, this gentleman named Tim Chester opens with two scriptures. The first is this famous line from Luke, the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. And then the second line is uh, from Luke as well, Luke chapter 7, the Son of Man came eating and drinking. So in this book, Chester poses two important questions. What did Jesus come to do? Well, one of those things apparently was to seek and save the lost. How did he go about it? Eating and drinking? Um, Jesus' strategy for evangelism looked something like, what's your name? Zach? Cool. Climb down out of the tree. 
um, now that you're down, how about dinner? Uh, <laughs> and at your house. Uh, you know, Jesus was homeless. If you have a house, go with your house. Uh, just personal suggestion. How do we reach uh, our city or our neighborhoods or our schools and workplaces? Open up your house to share a meal with people far from God. There's this great line in Romans 12 that says simply, practice hospitality. I love that. Imagine Van City becoming a hub of radical hospitality, a family in which no one treats their own home as their own privately owned sanctuary in which they might hide away from the world, but as belonging to God and therefore open to all people from all backgrounds and stories and walks of life. What if your home or your apartment were known for its openness and its kindness and its good food? Um, Vancouver and really the, the Portland metro area are sort of known as a general transient sort of culture. So many of us, because of this, are living in isolation, whether that's digital isolation, you know, purporting some fabricated life from the safety of a phone, but not really enjoying community whatsoever, or actual lonely isolation, no community at all, no connectedness, no family around. And idealistic though it may seem, I believe that shared meals can actually change the world. One person I know who does this well is our very own Cameron Silsby, this, this guy down here. It's funny because you're so close to me. If you were somewhere hiding in the, car, or the crowd, I would just be like, Cameron, and no one would know, maybe a few people around, but now I've drawn attention to you, sorry. And to say nice things about you, it's the worst. Um, Cameron, he, he works part-time at Fred Meyer. He spends a great deal of time with folks that he'd like to get to know better or that he would love to see follow Jesus. So he and his wife, Hannah, they invite them over for dinner. It's the work of a master strategist. I'm like, how did you come up with this plan? You know, they invite them over for dinner. They eat a meal. They have conversations. They're open to what the Spirit might want to say to that person. And sometimes he has amazing stories about the conversations that he has and the stuff that happens because of it. And sometimes not. They just eat food. They enjoy one another's com company. Again, the work of a master strategist, people. How am I going to get through to this person? Hey, you want to have dinner? How did you come up with that? And my personal estimation, we often make one of two mistakes when it comes to what the church often calls mission or evangelism. One, we complicate things with premedicated, disingenuous pre-planning. You know, we sort of treat people like they're targets. Uh, and then the entire premise becomes overwhelming and entirely dishonest and untenable altogether. Or we assume that if we're nice and we're well-behaved and we do social justice, people will somehow come to a supernatural aware of, awareness of Jesus without us having to say anything at all. But mission doesn't have to be overwhelmingly strategic. Just invite someone over for dinner. Start there. Um, and quite frankly, no one's really impressed by kindness and social justice anymore. Really, uh, in fact, in our current cultural climate, it's often the case that more social justice work is being done by folks who don't follow Jesus, I'm sorry to say. So no one's going to see you painting the walls of a DHS building and stagger in place and rush over to you saying like, you're painting the walls? Tell me about this God you must serve, you know. Um, so instead of all the pre-medicated strategies and, and the assumed power of social justice, I'm not down on social justice at all. Please, by all means, paint the walls of the DHS building. We need you to do that. But it, instead of all uh, putting all our eggs in either of those baskets, here's a simple suggestion. Share a meal with someone far from God. 
learn uh, about what they do and what they love and why. And then, if it makes sense, talk about what you do and what you love and why. If you are an apprentice of Jesus, that will always include Jesus. Um, don't sort of lie and wait sneakily preparing to spring this trap on people that are in your life that are far from God. When the time is right, I'm going to let them know that I follow Jesus. Be open and honest about your life with Jesus without hesitation. The longer you wait to talk about it, the more you imply that it doesn't matter to you at all. And my final suggestion for the evening is this. To just live in the now, man. Some of you... I know, uh, are a bit like my wife, Abby. So a schedule is like a treasure map that leads to your sanity and mental well-being. A checklist is how you, un that's like your worldview. You understand the world through the lens of a checklist. But, and that's great, some, sometimes. <laughs> it's great sometimes. But healing the sick and, and speaking prophetically into a friend's life, some of these things don't exactly fit comfortably into recurring life rhythms. In fact, when you read the Gospels, you see that, get this, most of Jesus' miracles were interruptions of an otherwise established plan or schedule. Uh, that famous line of Jesus in the Great Commission, go into all the world, could also be translated as, as you are going. For some of you, that means get on a plane, fly to Zimbabwe and make disciples. Absolutely, sure. But for most of you, that means go to your job tomorrow and make disciples. Or take your kids to the park and make disciples. Get a latte at Compass down the street and make disciples. Open your eyes every single day to what God is doing and would like to do all around you. I suspect that there are endless points of entry into the work of Jesus, many of which we miss even when our eyes are open. And that's not meant to discourage, but to encourage you into the myriad of simple, achievable opportunities to partner with Jesus in kingdom work as you are going into the world, so to speak. Jesus had this uh, incredible ability to see into people and recognize what God was up to. So this week, my encouragement is that, to see. As you conclude your time of being with God each morning, pray something simple like, God, Enable me to slow down today, to live in the now, see what you're up to, and to join in. No matter how complex or challenging our city is, or our neighborhoods are, or your workplace is, no matter the season or stage of life, I suspect each and every one of us can share a meal from time to time with someone that is far from God. Certainly, each one of us can slow down and ask for eyes to see what God is up to. And our prayer is that as time carries on, as we age in the place that we call home, as our kids grow up, that we would actually see our workplaces and our neighborhoods and our city changed. That we would see the kingdom come in Vancouver as it is in heaven.